All right, so a little while back. So last last class we did we covered the we covered Darabunans, exactly what's going on with that. Because we have well, we have a prohibition that you can't add to the Torah and subtract from it. So like, what's going on? So it looks like Darabunans are a little bit of adding and subtracting. So the way the way we kind of describe this one is that Darabunans really are not. You know the way the way the way that you you know say would be over this prohibition would be say Sukkot is a seven day holiday. Well, it's when you add an eight day. Like the the intrinsic nature of Sukkot is by definition having seven days. Well, adding to that that's a problem. But say Shofar, where the only thing that has anything to do with the mitzvah Shofar is just blow the thing. So there's no limit to it. You can blow it as many times as you want. Adding adding Shofar blows would not be a prohibition. Based on this, on this idea of, of of not adding or subtracting the Torah, so Darabon does have some wiggle room in the sense that it's not it's room? some wiggle room, right? It's not going to be it's not going to fall under this prohibition because it's not as though the Darabonans are adding new mitzvahs per se, but rather they they serve they 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 serve a function to enable the the doing of the mitzvahs that we have. So I gave you know, four examples of, you know, avoiding mistakes in halacha, you know, idea like that is, well, moksa, you know, moksa on Shabbos is to protect people from carrying, you know, maybe people will forget you, you should. You know how people, um, they put upon themselves extra things just, just for their own sake to put fences around? So how come Durban, like, keeping second day, for example, isn't optional? <laughs> Back to your last week. We're going to get, we're going to deal with homers in a second class. There, there are these stringencies. That, that's a, that's a different, that's a different creature. Well, we'll talk about that. Okay. But keep second day. I know, I know. So one is avoiding mistakes. And Mooks is a good example. You know, that we don't allow, you know, playing with objects un, un, uh, you know, needlessly. And that's, well, it's a reminder of, wait a second, be careful with how you play with objects on Shabbos. Because, well, hey, you can't carry that out into the, into the public domain, the Rishu Zarabim. Um... Another, another function is it preserves the nature of halacha. You know, an example of that is not asking non-Jews to do malacha on Shabbos. That preserves the nature of Shabbos. You might be technically doing everything right, but man, wouldn't Shabbos look different if you'd ask your, your, your non-Jewish neighbor to turn on your TV, cook you up a nice pizza, and, uh, you know, buy you a lotto ticket and maybe you win. Like, that's not Shabbos, although technically you're keeping it. So it's preserving the nature of 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 those sort of halachas. Instills moral spiritual lessons, which is exactly what Purim and Hanukkah are doing. That well, you know, Purim is well we of course before Purim we believe that that you know God's hidden in the world and and he's behind the scenes uh, uh, move, making stuff move. Um, but it's something that's 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 a, uh, is such a hard thing to get in your get in your bones that we need to make a holiday that very much highlights that particular idea. So it's not a creation of a new idea, but again, trying to, to preserve it, to make it to make it more prevalent, to strengthen what already is there. And preserving the national character would be another function of Darabonance. You know, that's, that's the whole idea behind um, not being allowed to eat things that non-Jews cook in order so that we don't start hanging out, having great block parties with non-Jews and then end up marrying non-Jewish folk. That preserves the character of the Jewish people. Okay. And then another, the next question we, we dealt with was, well, how religious are Darabonans? Is this a man thing or is this a God thing? And we had two positions on this. We had the Ramban, 
that asserts no, this is purely functional. That the 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 while it's true, you know, the Torah does obligate us to listen to rabbis in Beis Din. When we ask a halachic shaila, we're stuck with whatever their answer is, whether we like it or not. Well, that's true. But no, derabundans are are functional. They're not a they're not a, a new sort of mitzvah. It's not its own religious thing. Whereas the Rambam argues no. Man, man was given the was given It's the basis of free will. It's the basis of spirituality. We are godly, and by definition, what a godly thing does is it creates. We don't just sense morality. We don't just understand what's really there. But there's there's something to people that we can actually create more of it. And so, for the Rambam, when we when a derabanan is made, it actually becomes its own. Uh, mitzvah ase or lotase. It becomes a deraisa. Min a Torah. It's a Torah thing. So this has some practical uh, questions to it of, well, you know, well, what, my wife said not to tell this, but I'm, I'm doing it anyway, that, well, do you have to do tshuva if you break a derabanan? So for the Rambam, who says it's a new spiritual mitzvah, of course you have to. Do I need to do tshuva so. for the past 20 years of my life? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, no. What? What with, with the second day thing? Well, no. Well, the, the Rambam would say yes. The How Rambam would say, like any other tshuva, you, you you say, shoot, sorry, I didn't mean, to, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I made a mistake. This is the mistake I made. You verbalize it. Uh, you know, you want to really articulate this well, organize what it is you did wrong in your head, and say, okay, I'm not doing that sucker ever again. That's how you do tshuva. Okay, that's easy. That's easy. Well, you know, what's not easy is a lot of times the thing, you know, whether it's a Darabon and Daraisa, it's, you know, when, whenever we screw up, you know, there is the actual screw up that we did. But, man, is it not obvious that's, ex- that's what you should be as sorry about. You know, well, what's motivating those sort of behaviors you have, you know. Well, you know, let's say that, you know, you, you know, you, uh, you're in the McCullet and the the guy stiff changes you, and he was an honest mistake, but you still blow up at him and you call him a moron. Well, the superficial thing that was naughty was calling him a moron. Granted, but what was motivating that behavior? Are you getting enough sleep? How are your 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 intimate relationships with people? You know, maybe it's because you're having a hard time with your mom that uh, that you're in such a rotten mood. Well, of course you're going to yell at the McCullough man if you're having a severe fight with your mom. You know, maybe that's what you should be doing chuva for. Also, maybe that's in fact more important to do chuva for. Just your general behavior with people. The general behavior is very superficial, but it's like, well, what's motivating that behavior? Oh. You know, sure you yelled at the McCullough man, but what? Why? What's going on? You know, maybe maybe you're not eating enough. That's usually the problems in life are quite simple. You know, people come into my office and I, I end up not doing therapy initially with them. And the first things I do with them is, are you eating breakfast? Are you sleeping eight hours? And then a lot of problems just magically go away. Wow. So it's that that's that's a very that's a very nice thing to have in your toolkit is if life's not going your way, try those things out for a week and see if it changes. Yeah, people who don't get eight hours sleep. Like, usually, most people get six hours, and and that's that's horrid. It, it's killing you. You know, hands down, it's killing you. But what you don't realize, what you don't realize 
is your mental functioning. People think they're saving time. You know, like, well, you know, I those two extra hours every day, I'm being so productive. Well, first, it's not true. They actually make less money, and the problems they try and sort out in their profession or personal life are the dumb problems that really don't do anything because they're just too tired to handle complicated issues. But but more more uh, more um, more to the point, it's like you have the same functioning, getting six hours of sleep, as if you were if you were just snot drunk. That's snot drunk. drunk. Never heard that. Well, what is snot drunk pain? Bad. That's you are you you downed. You had you. You're over the legal limit. You know, it's, it's it's bad. No, and but but people don't realize that they're walking around just as functional as a drunkard. Well, that's what six hours will do for you, and you don't. Every night. Or oh night. yeah, it's horrid, and and you don't sense it because the because it, basically being away causes minor brain damage. That's kind of the outcome of being awake and sleep fixes the minor brain damage so the less sleep you get the more brain damaged you are and you're so brain damaged you don't realize you're less self-aware of what's going on in your life that you don't catch man i'm acting like a drunkard i don't you don't you don't realize it you know you only realize it after eight eight uh, you know after a week of sleeping eight hours and you're like wow life's different i didn't realize i was you know, I had all these dreams and ambitions and I was this smart and I didn't realize I could be this, you know, interesting. And wow, I didn't, you know, like, who's this person? It's a, it's a huge transformation. So it's like, it's not obvious what you have to do true before. You have to really start thinking about, okay, well, here I am yelling at the Bacola man, but how did I get here? That's that's a bigger question. So, okay, so... Uh, what do you mean by doing true for bad character traits, though? Why should you verbalize, Hashem, I'm sorry for being... Verbalization is super important because most people don't do a good job thinking. That's really the bottom line. We don't think in an organized way. Either people are thinking in images, which are low resolution images that are not so detailed, or like the narratives. If you if you think in narratives, I, I, I curiosity. Do you, do you think in images or words? What do you mean? Your thoughts, your actual thoughts. Do you think in images or words? Can you give an example of... When you think, are you seeing things move, like like watching a movie? Or are you hearing a, a narrator, like someone telling a story? People... Both. Yeah, okay, both. Some people are both. Okay, mostly narrative. That, I think in daydreams. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's interesting, you know, like, if you're only doing one, that means half of... Half of a, a normal human experience is not how you think, because like we see things and we hear things, and and like if you don't, you know that's that's missing. You know you you do both. You're pro, you know great, but um, but even still, it's not organized. You know it's it's like a bunch of firing of thoughts and ideas yeah, and images. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's just a it's not it's not well ordered. What verbalizing does, putting something into words or writing, what that does is it organizes your thoughts. You you have to like. It's not just you had a thought, but you ha- it, it, your feet are held to the fire to make sure you're accurate in what you're thinking. And accuracy is big. You know, it might, it might feel like, yeah, you know, the wine pudding, it's more or less true. And, well, it's, you know, it's, it's like, you know, way back in a, in, in, if you make a diagram of, of, of this sort of thing as well, you know, the two options at the very beginning are fairly narrow, but, you know, the V spreads out to the point, well, look, look two miles ahead in your life the two versions that you had are going to be extremely different, you know? So it, verbalizing it is, it, verbalizing chuva is get, organizing what you're, what, you're, what you're trying to figure out, what problem you're trying to tackle, and to then come up with a real solution. 
how not to do it again. Because just thinking about it, it's not going to do much. Yeah. Even if you really feel it, you know, like, in people, you know, people really do feel embarrassed and, and upset, and and uh, and that just keeps occurring in life because few people actually put it in words, put it in writing. Yeah. If somebody, if you beat yourself up, you have to do chua for that. What do you mean by beat yourself up? Like you, like if you would do that to someone else, you'd probably have to do chua. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, what does that do. look like? Same thing. Just do chua for that. You know, you're, you have to take care of yourself too. Just like you have to take care of other people. The way Revolva kind of looked at it was your neshama is kind of like a parent and your, and your, and your body is kind of like the child. You have to be a good parent to your child. You have to treat your body nicely, which means your mind and your feelings. And, you know, like these are parts of our bodies. Your body's a child. Your mind is a parent? Your neshama is the parent. Neshama. You have to develop a sense of that neshama. And you have to be a good parent to yourself. And okay, you know, not everybody had a, a a good model for parents. And you might have to sit down and read a couple books on what good parenting looks like. Like really, like that's that might actually be. In order to do the Torah, you might have to learn some some parenting books. Because yeah, that's how you have to treat yourself. So so for the Rambam. Can I bring this back to the Darabonans for the Rambam? Because we have this ability to create meaning, well, you would have to do tshuva for be, uh, uh, transgressing a Darabonan. For the Ramban, I mean shogig. I don't mean when you intentionally do it. This is only when you did so by mistake. Of course, if you intentionally broke a Darabonan, everybody's going to say you have to do tshuva. This is only when it was done by accident. But for the Ramban, when it's an, an accident, well, the way the Ramban thinks about Darabonans is, well, it's functional. You know, it's, it's, you want to you wanna listen to rabbis. And so if that's the whole thing, if every Darabonan is being a rabbi listener, well, okay, there is room to say, I didn't know. I, I am a rabbi listener. I just didn't know that the rabbis had anything to say on this topic. So there, for the Ramban, you would not be required to do tshuva when you, when you broke a Darabonin by a mistake. So, like you're getting back to what we were talking about last week, you know, you didn't know all this stuff about Second Day Yom Tov. You want to be a rabbi listener. You just didn't know the rabbi said to do it. Yeah. So that would be, that would be, that would be the, 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 the difference there. Okay, and then we, 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 we finished off with, you know, well, how do Darabonans come into existence? They have to be created by the Sanhedrin Agudel, the, the Jewish Supreme Court. And if you want to get rid of a Darabonin, the, the Sanhedrin Agudel has to get rid of it. When a Darabonin is first created, the community has to accept it. If it's, you know, rabbis can't just create willy-nilly insane Darabonins. It has to be livable. And if it's not livable, then the Darabonin in that first generation ceases to be. But if that Darabonin makes it, that first generation, it sticks. It has to have a, uh, it has to have a, the, the Sanhedrin go look get rid of it after that point. Okay, so what we're going to do today is talk about Midrashim. What's up with those things? What are Midrashim? So I had a couple, I want to give a couple different uh, sources here. 
I think are kind of neat that kind of frame our discussion for today. And one is an interesting medrash in Gemara Chigiga. And it says like this. The, the Medrash is playing with two different verses in, the, in Tanakh. And so, you know, Medrash, you know, starts out, well, one verse is, you know, they're talking about God's throne. So one verse says, quote, his throne was fiery flames from Sefer Daniel. And another in the same verse states, quote, till thrones were placed and one who was ancient of days sat, end quote, implying the existence of two thrones. Okay, so then the Gemara carries on. Well, what are these two thrones? Well, okay, you know, this isn't a hard problem that there's two thrones. Well, one throne is for Hashem, and one is for David Melech. As we have in Abraisa, that's from Rabbi Akiva, who says exactly that. Well, the plot thickens, because Rabbi Yossi Aglili, another Tana, says to Rabbi Akiva, he says, Akiva, how long shall you make the divine presence profane? By presenting it as though one could sit next to Hashem. Rather, the two thrones are designated for different purposes. One's for judgment and one's for righteousness. Rabbi Akiva doesn't do a good job at, 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 uh, at uh, Midrashim here. So then the Gemara continues. Well, did Rabbi Akiva accept the Rabbi Yossi's position? And we see he did. So we have another citation here that come in here. The following teaching of a different b'risa. One throne is for judgment and one is for righteousness. This is Rabbi Akiva, and he took Rabbi Yosei's idea of how to interpret these two verses. But then Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah comes along and says, Hey, Akiva, what are you doing busying yourself with the study of Agada? This is not your field of expertise. You should stick with the halachic topics of Nagayim and Olos. Leave Midrashim to the big boys. That's the end of that, that Gemara. And Nagayim and Olos are the most complicated areas of halacha. Okay. So we see, well, that's kind of interesting. Even when we're talking about Tanayim, whatever Agudic works are, there's a special skill to it. Not just anyone can do it. Not even someone like Rabbi Akiva, who our entire halachic system is based on, on Rabbi Akiva's approach to halacha. So it's like Rabbi Akiva plays a pretty big role in Judaism. We're Rabbi Akiva guys. But even he didn't make the boat in being able to tackle a Gutic works properly. There's another Tanaic source. This is from the Sifrei, Parshas Akev, that says that if you want to know Hashem, learn a Gutta. Okay, good idea. I want to know about Hashem. And we have another, we have a Gemara from the Yushalmi, the Maisros. It says Rabbi Zera made fun of people who would make drushos, who would, who would uh, you know, delve in, in a Gutic works. We don't learn anything from Magadha. And then he commanded his son, Rabbi Yirmiya, he said, stick with Halacha and ignore Agada. Don't get involved. A bunch of morons. Okay. Now we have another Yushalmi, this, this time from Gemara Shabbos. The Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, one who writes Agada has no portion in the world to come, and one who listens to them doesn't receive reward. So we got a lot of interesting statements about Agadic works. On the one hand, we're saying, hey, this is how you learn about Hashem. I like that. And then we have a whole bunch of other sources that are saying, stay away from them. Either it's for dumb people. Only dumb people do that sort of thing. From Agada? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, well, and we're going to spell this out. What are Agadic works? 
No, let's dump right in there because these are I am throwing around terms. I mean that's not so fair. So you know what what are what are agudic works? What are midrashim? Because these terms are used interchangeable. Agudah and midrashim are the same thing. Okay, so you so that's it depends. The, technically speaking, an agudic work is anything that is non-halachic based, whereas a medrash is halachic based. And the midrashim, the, te- the technical term medrash, were the, the, the Tanaic statements that predate the Gemara. And the Gemara was built ba- on, these, on these texts. The wrinkle is that people don't generally use these terms, uh, don't generally use the technical terms. So when you see the word medrash, it can be interchangeable. Sometimes when someone says the word medrash, they really mean agada. Sometimes when people say the word medrash, they don't mean a gutta. They actually mean a halachic sort of, you know, this proto gemara stuff. So, uh, sorry, could you? Yeah. Repeat? Yeah. So for so you said hagada, anything that's not halacha based, right? Halachic based, and that's for what's, sure. What's the medrash? And medrash is either uh, 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 the technical term medrash is referring to halachic uh, halachic works that predate the gemara. Oftentimes, though, people people use the word medrash as a... a, Oftentimes, people use medrash as a slang term for a gutta. So when you're reading something, you have to know. Is the person you're reading, are they using the slang term medrash or are they using the technical term medrash? So this is a wrinkle. I'm sorry, I apologize for Judaism. Thank you. You're welcome. I can't help that. Now, the Jews yeah, yeah. Okay, so the 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 Giborim, He's one. Of, he's a he's a Rishon. He outlines well. You know, looking at agudic works, there's really three types. He says, some are exaggerations, some are discussions of theological ideas, and some are moral and personal understandings that Chazal had. That's how he kind of outlines them. So we're going to be talking about, in the first part here, we're going to be talking about agudic works. And at the very end, we're going to swing around and start talking about, well, what about these halachic midrashim? What place do they have compared to the Gemara? Which we, like I said, you know, in previous classes, we decide halacha only based on the Gemara. Anything else is out as far as halacha is concerned. So we got one question here. Do you know, we got all these agudic, uh, interesting agudic stories. Um... What do we do with them? You know, first question is, well, are we obligated to believe in them? So here we have a machlokas. Rav Moshe Teku, in his Sefer Ketav Tamim, he comes out swinging. He has a very bold statement. He asserts that we have to understand all agudic works literally, and we must believe them wholeheartedly. We are obligated, he says. This is, this is Rav Moshe Teku. He was one of the Balitosvas. Yes. And you'll and, and he's he's fairly representative of the Balitosvas because as a as an approach, usually the Balitosvas do take on Agudic works very literally. As, as a sense, like that's that's kind of where they come from as a from their halachic tradition. Um, whether or not they come out and say it. When you're going through, say, Rashi, when he's bringing Midrashim, you know, you get a very fair sense that he seems to mean these Midrashim oftentimes very literally. 
It's rare that, and he, but he does, but, but it, it is rare that he, he pulls back. You know, sometimes he does take non-literal positions, but you have a sense that he was, he was pushing, he was, uh, he, was, he was understanding those in a more literal context. Well, in, in, in Ramosha Teku, in his Sefer, uh, he's coming out swinging against Rasadia Gaon, one of the Gaonim. Yo. He was one of the first. That's right. I know you like the Gaonim. <laughs> Yo, I love Rasadia. I tried. I, I tried to convince my wife to name our son Sadia. I love that name. Yeah, that's a really yeah. Cool name. She wasn't into it one bit. <laughs> so, so Rasadia. Well, he was one of the first to actually outline Jewish theology. There, I mean, this, the, having books about Jewish belief is something we all take for granted. But way back in the day, like, that just wasn't done. So he, was, he actually was one of the very first to write works on what Jews ought to believe. And he took a very uh, non-literal position, that you shouldn't take a Guttic works literally, that they are highly metaphorical. So, so Ramosha Teku basically calls him an idiot and an ignoramus, and that, um, sorry, chief, missed the boat, you have to take him literally. So that's position number one. And that they're divinely inspired, no less. You know, they're from Harsinai. This is the argument Ramosha Teku makes. The Ramban, in his, uh, in the Kisfei Ramban, he, over there, there's a couple other places where he kind of gets into this, but he actually, he compares uh, Agudic works more like, uh, more like a drusha that a Rav would give in Shul. They're more moral-based. They're, you know, well, there might be halakhic ideas supporting them, but they're more of like an insight into people. They're, they're, they're very theologically based, and that one's not obligated to believe in them literally. They're not, uh, you don't have to believe them as being true in order to be Jewish. You don't, you're not an apicorist. You don't, you don't get kicked out of the club for thinking that uh, they're not literally true. What's interesting is he doesn't exactly take a position, are they actually literally true or not? Or, you know, what true means. You know, I, 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 knowing the Ramban, I don't think he means literally true the same way Moshe Teku does. But he's not making an argument, ah, do what you want with them. He's just kind of drawing a line in the sand that you're still Jewish and you're not considered a heretic if you don't want to buy into Agudic works. That's the Rambam. And this is supported by the other Gaonim. In Otsar Gaonim, we see the positions of the positions of Rav Shur Gaon or of Hai Gaon. That we know what Agudic works are, they're assumptions that Chazal made. So as far as assumptions go, Chazal assumptions are the best, you know, they're the most informed about Judaism. But one's not obligated to believe in them, to rely on them. And the and, and Rav Hai Bush extends this further, saying, no, these are not from Harsinai. They're not a part of the Mesorah, and these are the personal views of Chazal. And that's one reason why they're not even looked at as a source of halacha. That's why we don't poskin from Agudic works. Okay. As far as the, the, these two views, one outcome we see from Shmuel Hanagid, is the way he kind of looks at Agudic works as, again, you know, personally, you know, how do you, how do you look at them? Well, Shmuel Hanagid kind of says, listen, you know, personally accept whatever you're able to make sense out of. What you don't, can't make sense out of, no harm, no foul. And the Kuzari goes so far as to say, listen, many of these are impossible to understand. That these, these were actually, these Agudic works were written in secret, 
that the actual Amorayim who stated these metaphors, these deep theological ideas, because they're not just, you know, they're not silly metaphors. These are deep, meaningful things. Well, one thing about metaphor is, is that, you know, they exist in a, in, a, in, a, in a context of relationship. You know, if they're kind of like, you know, one way of thinking about them from the Kuzri's perspective is they're like an inside joke. If you and I have an inside joke and I just reference it, well, you'll laugh, right? That's what an inside joke is. And everyone else who hears it will just look at you like you're a moron. That's basically how the Kuzri is describing Agadic works, is that outside the close Talmudium of the Amora who who, 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 uh, who created this agudic idea, outside of the close Talmudim, no one's going to understand them. And in fact, the, the, the Amorayim did not want them. Uh, the uh, different Amorayim, different Tanayim, they didn't want them included in the Gemara, but because these students loved their rabbis so much, they slipped them in anyway. They were sneaky. The Rambam has a more middle-of-the-road position than, say, Ramosha Teku or the Ramban. In the beginning of Perkhelik, Gemara Sanhedrin, Mishnayish Sanhedrin, the, the Rambam has a, a very lengthy sort of treatise where he gets into how to understand Agatha's, what are the, say, the 13 principles of faith. Like, I would highly recommend going to the Rambam's Mishnah in Perkhelik and reading it. It's a really interesting read. And so one thing that he that he notes over there is well he almost you know he says listen there's three types of people who who uh, who are playing around with midrashim with the works. And the majority of people are kind of like our buddy Ramosha Teku. They take him at face value. They think they're literal, and these people are ignorant. He kind of throws back the name calling. The more the more we show him, you learn. You kind of like it's kind of interesting to see how these guys talk smack. You know, like they really dig into each other. So they're calling each other morons left, right. So he puts it on the table. It's a moronic idea to take uh, agudic works literally. And, the, and he says that they're making a fundamental mistake because they're fighting so hard to take these ideas literally because they think that they're defending Chazal, that they're elevating their status somehow. But really they're just portraying them as fools. Because within these midrashim, these, in these agudic works, they have very deep meaningful moral and theological ideas and it's when you make them literal you lose them you miss so much when you take them literally so that's group number one the rambam outlines group number two you had a question oh no i was pausing okay yeah i have a a question yeah i hope it it it, whatever um do the cards study gemara Yep, but they don't take it as, as meaningful. So what's the point of studying it? Cards. Uh, interesting ideas. They look at it as just interesting ideas. Who, who are these interesting ideas? Karites. Uh, they're a branch of... Uh, they, they broke off of Judaism way back when. Uh, and their right. basic argument was the rabbis are full of it. That, that's those sorts of people. Don't want to read yes. the Torah literally. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, so so group so so that's the Ron Bomb's first group. The second group. Do they yeah. think do they think that because they're meta like if everything from the Torah should be taken literally, so we should take the Haggadic works as literally because it just makes it more Is that why they do it? Because it makes them more Well that's an interesting thing because like what's cool about fundamental Juda- fundamentalist Judaism 
is that we're the only fundamentalist religion that doesn't take its written text literally. Like, an eye for an eye. You know, that's a great example. Like, no rabbinic authority says you gouge people's eyes out. You know? But, like, most fundamentalist religions, like, that, they're kind of stuck. They're like, this is the word of God, it must be true, and it must be literal. And they, they really back themselves into a corner. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's an oddity. It's like an interesting sort of thing. Like, the... The firmest version of Judaism doesn't take its text literally. There is, there is uh, context is an important part of whenever you're reading something. You know, context is everything. So yeah, to answer your question, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, when it comes to Gemara, Gemara is different. Like there is kind of an assumption that you should take what you should take statements in the Gemara literally because the assumption is they're trying to teach in the most straightforward manner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, wait a second. If that's the rule in Gamara everywhere else, well, it's f- it's a fair idea to want to apply that also to Agudic works. It just it kind of falls apart contextually. Like, when was the last time that you saw you know a, a you know a fifteen story fiery bird laying egg that is so large that it crushes a city? Like that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's one Agudah, but like. Kind of hard to justify that literally, but when you start opening it up, as the Rambam's point is, well, you you shouldn't just adopt, you know, Rishmulanagi and the Kuzri's thinking of, well, you know, just take take what you can. It's like no, this is there. There's a science here, and this is this. There's seriously what to learn from these Agudic works. So his group number two is well, they're kind of similar to to the first group. That um, group number two does assume Chazal made uh, st- uh, made these statements literally, but then they make fun of Chazal. These are these are. You know, kind of like, you know, these are our Karites or whatever, you know, the people who like to bash the rabbis. And then there's group three. And the Rambam says, this group is so small, it's really hard to even define them, like, as a group. They're, they're more of a bunch of guys than anything else. They're not actually they're a group. Club. It's a club. Yeah, it's, it's, a le- it's less than a club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, this third group, well, they, they do take on this belief that Chazal... Never speak words that are empty. It's kind of like Moshe Teku. There's something there. Where the Rambam disagrees with Moshe Teku is, what does it mean true? Truth is not literal. In fact, the most important truth things in life oftentimes are, are, well, they're not physical. They're not objects. They're not... In the world, they're, they're concepts we sense, they're things we feel, they're thoughts we have, the sense of things as we go through life. And that's true. And that might be more true than physical objects like a table or chairs or a tree. So the Rambam, the Rambam is definitely trying, he's almost like in a, a, a mix, an amalgamation between Ramosha Teku and, say, the Ramban. I mean, it may not even be so fair. I think that the Rambam is, is in agreement with the Rambam. But I think the Rambam himself pushes more that, that you have to push yourself to learn these things. Like, it's, it's not such an option. You know, it's not like Shmulanagid. Well, you know, personally, just accept what you got. Like, no, there, there's a science here. And you have to invest to discover these truths. And it seems to be that as far as these uh, rabbinic positions go, the Rambam seems to take the day. As far as modern-day poskim, modern-day achronim, say the Maharal, 
uh, adopts the Rambam's position as opposed to the others. That no, we don't take a gut of works literally, but they have real meaning in them. They have real truth in them that you must discover and work out. Okay. So then the kind of question falls back to, well, okay, you know, fair enough. Well, why, like, why, you know, if there's real meaning here, well, why wouldn't you just say it in a straightforward way? Like, why even use, you know, if we're going to say that, that agudic works are mishalim, that they're metaphors, well, skip the metaphor. Because it, it, it is a fair criticism. Well, if, it's, if we have the rule that if it's in the Gemara, you have to teach it in the most straightforward, most sensible way. So well, why is it the most sensible way to teach these deep concepts with metaphors as opposed to just say it, man? So uh, there's, two, there's two, two ways to kind of play around with this idea. One, both are from the Ramchal, but one is from his book on rhetoric, uh, where he describes, you know, with, you know, as a speaker, you are basically, as you're speaking to a group, you're a walking contradiction. Because you have to speak about things your audience recognizes, but your job is to tell them things they've never heard of or understood before. That's your job as a speaker. Can you repeat that? That as a speaker, you have to tell your audience things they already know and can recognize, but your goal in doing so is to teach them something they've never known before. So how do you do that? Well, there's two ways. One is going through things step by step, a very linear sort of way, where you start from, you start where everyone understands in a certain topic, and then step by step you progress and you lead them towards information that that it was not obvious or they hadn't thought of before, but, you know, if they would have put enough thought into they would have gotten there because there's a linear progression. And that's one way of, of doing that as a speaker. The other way is, as a, is using a metaphor, where basically what you're doing is the metaphor is like a vehicle that you, you fill this vehicle up with words, with, sorry, you fill this vehicle up with meaning, with what is not obvious, but the shell of it is easily understood, and you zip that little car over to your audience. That's how you transport complicated ideas. You put them into a metaphor. The Ramban, in his introduction to his commentary on the Chumash, well, he basically is describing exactly that, where it's really it's a cool intro to read because he, he says, okay, listen, well, like mostly what I'm going to be doing is giving a straightforward understanding of all the verses in the Chumash. And every now and again, I'm going to start dealing with Kabbalistic, agudic ideas. And you, I'm, I, these ideas cannot be understood with logic. They cannot be understood with reason. Um, don't try to. If you try and understand these things with logic and reason, you're just going to mess up. And basically curses people who try to understand agudic Deep, deep theological uh, ideas using reason and logic. Yeah. Are we more able to grasp metaphors? I think so. I think, I mean, they're very powerful. 
They're very powerful. That's why they're so great to use. But that's also like if you're going to use them, you have to you have to well you have to craft them in a in a very uh, well thought out way. But yeah, they're very powerful. They're very powerful. I mean, a lot of therapies are are, are based on the idea of only speaking in metaphors, where because like a lot of times people get stuck in their own thinking, and so if you talk to them in a normal way, you basically trigger their their biases. So you don't want that because their biases are leading them to be anxiety-ridden and depressed. So, well, how do you get around that? How do you communicate a new way of looking at the world? Well, what you do is you, you talk with them in metaphors where you're saying words they've never heard before. So nothing triggers their biases. And the metaphors are just so packed with, with, with insight and meaning that it, it just it hits the person. Because, again, the shell of the metaphor is very understandable. And this is exactly what the Ramban is talking about, is you don't understand metaphors with logic and reason. They're symbolic. They, they're not math. So you, you kind of have to feel out a metaphor more than you think it out. Although you have to do both, you're more feeling out a metaphor. They are dangerous, though, because when you're feeling out a metaphor, you know, the playing field's wide open. You could, fe- you, could, you, could feel out a, you could feel out a medrash in many ways that might actually be quite insane. And so this is, this is one reason why, as a halacha, one, especially when it comes to Kabbalah, let's say, which is that those are Gaddic works. I mean, the Zohar is a collection of Gaddic works. Why it's forbidden to study to study the Zohar. It's forbidden to study Kabbalah before you have learned all of Halacha. And so there's a great medrash. You know, this is kind of a, this is a, this is a bit of a paradox. Here is an Agudic work on why you should not learn Agudic works before learning Halacha. So we have the story of the, of the four Chachamim entering Pardes. One was our friend way back the beginning of my class, Rabbi Akiva, where Rabbi Akiva and Ben Zoma and Ben Azai and Elisha Ben Avuya all went into Pardes, meaning they, they entered into this very spiritual uh, realm. And Ben Zoma went crazy. Why did you have that name? Ben Azai, yeah, I don't know. Ben Azai committed suicide after this experience. Elisha Ben Avuya became a heretic after entering Pardes, and the only one to make it out alive was Rabbi Akiva. Wait, could we back up? I missed all of that. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> Once upon a time, four Chachamim entered Pardes. Pardes is, kind of think of it as like the, the spiritual manifestation of Gan Eden. Pure Kabbalah. Pardes. That's, that's a, yeah. Kabbalah is oftentimes referred to as Pardes. Literally, the word literally means orchard, but they, they, they entered Gan Eden and made direct contact with pure spiritual ideas. One, Benzoma. These are all these are all Tanaim. These are heavy hitters. You learn Gemara, these names all come up quite frequently. You know, these are these are not small figures. Well, Benzoma went crazy. That's what happened to him when he encountered Pardes. Ben Azai committed suicide afterwards. Alicia Benavuya became a heretic. And only one man made it out alive, and he was just fine. It was Rabbi Akiva.
One one commentary on this agada is from from uh, Ramosha Cordova. He was he was a Kabbalist. He was the teacher of the Rizal. And he describes what was what the, the what happened, the problem that that the three other Tanaim encountered was they started to anthropomorphize their experience. They were mistaking metaphor for literal truth. So this Ramosha Cordova would not jive so nicely with Ramosha Teku. It's like that's what made them go crazy or kill themselves or become a heretic. Is they took their experiences literal. And they were they were just too open. They were just too open to the experience. Whereas Rabbi Akiva, he, like I said before, he, our, our halachic system is based on Rabbi Akiva and the way that he understood the, the oral tradition. He, he is the epitome of halacha. That's what he symbolizes. And it was because he was rooted in halacha. He was rooted in literal behavior that is good and bad, right and wrong that he had a reference point to guide him and not get lost when he was encountering these metaphors, these mishalim, these deep Kabbalistic ideas. So, while, you know, I mean, kind of, you know, Thinking about this one is, you know, this might this might be why you know getting back to some of the other Rishonim I was I was citing, say you know Shmuel Nagid was saying, hey, listen, you know, take what you can, but you know, take it easy with when it comes to Agudic works, is because the action might be too dangerous. You might you might be getting you might be in over your head with these sorts of ideas. And so, okay, take what you can, but hold them lightly. They're not simple. You know, we start talking about ideas of what are truth, what are true, what, what is truth, what is not truth, what is real, what is not real. You know, we're human experience is not mostly talking about the physical world we live in. We're, we're, most of what we talk about is really the meaning, the underlying significance of the things that happen to us. So we, we have to we, we, we have to be in that world. You know, it's almost like the world itself is a mushal. You know, it literally is a mushal. Like we don't look at objects in their in their non-arbitrary fashion. Like, you know, if I were to ask, you know, about, you know, describe this table, well, you might describe what you do with it or what's on it, you know, what purpose does it serve, what its meaning is. But you're not going to start telling me what the thickness of the wood is, what its density is, how many atoms, it, uh, you know, make up this table. You know, we, we really don't care about those sorts of things, although we can describe them. Most of human experience is meaning. Like, so most of the world is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a metaphor. That's kind of one way of thinking about it. So... You know, it's, it's almost like we're caught in a catch-22. Is like, well, okay, like, be careful going into parties. But at the same time, you kind of have to. In a certain respect, you're already there. That's what the world is. It's a world of meaning. So how do you navigate that world of meaning? How do you not get lost? How do you not just start, you know, being like a crazy carite, you know, and saying whatever it is you want to say? Well, you have to, you have, to have a, a, a beacon, a, a lighthouse that guides your path. That's what halacha is. Yeah. Halacha is, is spiritual ideas 
acted out. It's pure spirituality acted out. And once you act it out, that's the first step in understanding spiritual ideas, like Rabbi Akiva. And you can become more sophisticated in your thinking. You should be a Rambam person and try and work these issues out. You know, we are given this Tzalem Elohim to understand meaning, and, you know, we're, we're meaning makers in many ways. So, you know, that's it's something we, we ought to do and we have to do. Tread carefully. Don't make the mistake that these other, um, these other Tanayim did of taking them too literally. Truth's not literal. I don't, I don't mean to sound... You know, silly. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, I don't, I don't mean that simple. I don't mean that simplistically. But like, truth is not literal. You know, fundamentally, the whole idea. So, you know, because this is like the classic debate. You know, like religion and science. Uh, but like, well, what's science? What's a what's a what's a good definition of science? Is the description of how objects behave. That's what science is. And then we make technologies based on how objects behave. But again, like that's not mostly what we're considered. That's not mostly what we're concerned about in life. We don't care about how objects behave. You know, it's very nice that a bus moves 50 miles per hour. And it's very interesting, the, the physics behind how something that massive and something moving that quickly, well, what happens when it hits a human body? We don't care about the physics of it. The meaning of a loss of life is what catches our eyes. That's truth. And that's what I mean by, you know, Literal fact is not truth. Because it doesn't mean anything. So that's, 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 but that yeah. Isn't that contradicting? I mean, is I know it? you just spoke about yeah. this for so long, but yeah. literal fact is not truth. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that is a mixing up terms. Okay. So for the table example. Yeah. Like, I could say this serves only as a holder for food. Yeah. So that's that's fact. It's a but purpose. It's not truth. It's a purpose. Mm-hmm. When you look at it because you can define objects in different ways like, you know, take a library. This is a perfect example. We categorize books based on topic. What's the book about? What does the book mean? But that's that's, you know, from a literal perspective, that's fairly arbitrary. We could easily have categorized books as well, books that mention the word the 15,000 times, that's one category. And there's books that mention it 15,001 times, that's another category. Or we could categorize books based on the color of the, of the cover itself. That's another way of categorizing books. You know, there's, there's a million and one ways to, there's a really infinite amount of ways to categorize books, but there's only one that we usually use. What's the book about? What does it mean? And that's what I mean, like, you know, fact is not truth. Because it's factual how many times the word the is mentioned in the book. But it's not useful. What a table's made out of is not useful. What it does is useful. What it means to us is useful. That's, 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 the, that's the point I'm making. And, that's, and I think that's, that's, that's the, the spirit of, of a gutic work. So when we, get, when we get back to all those interesting citations I was bringing up for you guys earlier on the beginning of class, is like, well, you know, well, that first, that first, uh, the first several citations, you kind of we'll put them all together. Well, you know, what works are trying to learn what a Shem is. What, what does it mean 
uh, about uh, you know moral truth and 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 you know spiritual ideas. Well, you need to to learn Agata to understand those things. Getting back to the Sifrei. But at the same time, getting back to Rabbi Zerah and how he was saying, listen, you know, he's telling his son Rabbi Yirmiya, just pay attention to halacha. There's a bunch of idiots out there who, you know, like a gutta is not so, not so important. Well, that's group one of the Rambam. That's group two of the Rambam. Those are the sort of people who just take a gutta works literally. Like, there's nothing worth anything in that. You know, stick with halacha. Because if you do, then you have a, a, a map and a means to be able to interpret meaning in the world, and maybe you can start making sense of a gutta. But don't do what everyone else does. Don't treat it like a newspaper. And that's, that, that gets back to this idea, you know, of uh, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi saying, you know, well, someone who writes down a guttic works has no portion in the world to come. It's like, these are complicated ideas. They're, they're so complicated, maybe you shouldn't write them down. Maybe you should hesitate to write them down because people won't understand your metaphor is so good. Maybe you have bad metaphors, even though maybe your idea is true. So, like, watch out. You could actually harm people with the sort of metaphors that you use. A lot's writing on this. You might actually lose your Chelech because your metaphor is so bad that you're going to make people go off the derech. And, and, but, but, but he doesn't say... Don't don't engage the metaphors. He doesn't say don't engage the 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 gutic works. In the second part, you know, one who listens to them doesn't receive reward. These are not things you listen to. These are things you work out. So yes, don't listen to them. Don't engage them superficial. Don't engage them superficially. Don't listen to them. Think about them. Beat them out. Tear them apart. Get in their guts and figure out what the underlying meaning is. In a gutta. Because at the end of the day, the Sifra got it right. That, that's the most intimate way you will understand a shit. But like the Rambam says, it's a science. And not so many people are up to the challenge. Just because not so many people are up to the challenge doesn't mean you get to shirk responsibility. It just means when you engage them, take them deadly seriously and know you're handling fire. It's no, it's no, it's no coincidence that agudic works are oftentimes symbolized as fire. You have to tame them, otherwise it will destroy you. They're dangerous if they're just used in a in a in a haphazard sort of way. You know. That's what I got. Thank you. That's what I got. Questions, comments, concerns. Um, the law to follow. Just want to point out, I only fell asleep at five a.m. last night. <laughs> <laughs> so my brain is a, li- like... <laughs> a little bit of an alcoholic over there, huh? <laughs> it's not oh no! All right, guys. Cool. Thank you so, All right, so take it easy. Well, I don't even know how to categorize these notes. <laughs> a lot of bullet points, but no, this class was awesome.